have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 6, Mark chapter 6. Um, if you do not have a Bible, all you have to do is simply raise your hand, and one of our ushers will put a Bible in your hands. You will need the Word of God this morning. So if you don't have a Bible, just go ahead and lift your hand up, and one of our ushers will put one in your hand. If you don't own a Bible, that Bible is our gift to you. You can keep that. You can take that home. Um, write your name in it. That is yours. Um, if you just left your Bible in the car, said, don't take our Bible. Leave it here. Leave it here. A few weeks ago, Pastor Jake preached a sermon through Mark chapter 5 that was grounded in the theme, don't be afraid, only believe. And so we saw the power and the presence of Jesus doing everything from calming the storm to casting out demons to restoring the health of a young girl to resurrecting a young woman. Jesus again and again has been calling his followers to trust in him, to not be afraid, but to believe in him. In today's passage, we're going to get a clearer picture and a more robust definition of what does it mean to believe in Jesus. And let me not leave you in suspense. My claim and my point today, my aim today, is to get us to see that to believe in Jesus is to follow Jesus. And to follow Jesus is to believe in Jesus. Mark chapter 6. Normally, this is a chapter of Mark that is filled with familiar stories. Um, I was joking earlier this morning that this one chapter that we're going to go through the entire chapter this morning um, could easily be four or five sermons. They're some of the most well-known parts of Jesus's story, him being rejected in his hometown, the calming of the sea, the feeding of the 4,000, the feeding of the 5,000, um, John the Baptist beheaded. These are familiar stories for some, and what I hope to do is not just zoom in as is oftentimes worthy of being done, but I want to connect these stories. Because Mark is a very intentional writer. He positions and places narrative of Jesus' life to prove a point, not just to give an autobiography of Jesus. He's trying to teach us about Jesus. And so what I want to do is I want to work through these stories, and I'm going to connect them because I believe the Word of God is saying one thing primarily in these passages, and it's that to believe in Jesus is to follow Jesus. Let's begin in Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, because this story is going to set the tone for the rest of the chapter. Read silently as I read aloud. He left there and came to his hometown, Mark chapter 6, verse 1, and his disciples followed him, talking about Jesus. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished. Where did this man get these things, they said? What is this wisdom that has been given to him, and how are these miracles performed by his hands? Isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And aren't his sisters here with us? So they were offended by him. Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his household. He was not able to do a miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he was amazed at their unbelief. He was going around the villages teaching. Now I said this introductory passage is going to set the tone because the village of Nazareth does explicitly what we're going to see the disciples and others do implicitly. The village of Nazareth does explicitly what the 
rest of the characters in this story are going to do implicitly. What are they doing? Two things stand out in this passage. One is that Jesus was amazed at their unbelief in verse 6. Now, that's a, that's a sharp change from what we saw earlier in the book of Mark, is it not? Mark chapter 1, verse 27 says, they were all amazed, and so begin to ask each other, what is this, a new teaching with authority? Jesus, he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Up to this point, all the amazement has been on those who saw Jesus, on those who heard Jesus. They were amazed that this man really could do the things that he said he could do, the things that seemed to be only reserved for God to do. But now... The onlookers aren't amazed. Jesus is. And he's amazed at their unbelief. That's the first thing that stands out in this passage. The other thing is why, the, why Jesus was amazed at their unbelief. It says that they didn't just disbelieve him. They didn't just not believe in him, that they were offended by him. Look at verse 3. It says that they were astonished. Where did these men get these things? What is this wisdom that has been given to him? How are these miracles performed by his hands? They were offended, so they were offended with him, verse the end of part three. Why would those whom Jesus came to seek and to save and to preach the truth to be offended at Jesus, and so much so that Jesus himself was amazed at their unbelief, amazed at their offense? Hear what they're saying. Isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? What are they doing right now? They're saying, you're a carpenter, you're the son of a carpenter, act like a carpenter. They're telling Jesus, you're Mary's son, stop trying to act like God's son. In summation, what they're really saying is, Jesus, who do you think you are? Or better yet, Jesus, stay in your place. And once again, Nazareth, this town, Jesus' hometown, is doing explicitly what the rest of the people in this passage are going to do implicitly. So what are they doing? They're saying, Jesus, you've taken it too far. Let me illustrate this with a quick story. Um, we, some of you know that we just moved into a new home not too long ago. And one of our first few days there, the refrigerator decided to just stop working randomly. And so that's great news to wake up to. All the food is bad and just, you know, all the things that go involved with that. And so um, I'm spiritual and money was tight. So I began to pray like, Lord, come on now. You raise somebody from the dead. You can heal this refrigerator. Um, so <laughs> come on now. God did something even better. We called, we called the warranty folks, and they said, hey, man, we're going to send somebody out. It's absolutely no charge. We're going to take care of it. We're going to get it fixed for you. I said, man, awesome. Guy showed up two days later, you know, uniform on, had a little sh- the covers on his feet so he wouldn't get the carpet dirty. I'm just a professional. Walked in, knew exactly what the problem was, and was super helpful because he began to talk about all the things about the refrigerator that I should know, apparently. Um, I I don't care, but he was so excited. I just sat there and listened to him talk about coolant and freezing over and hoses and valves. And I mean, he literally disassembled our refrigerator just to show me all the the nooks and crannies. And he was the expert, so I listened. I had any reason to not believe what he's saying was true, and so I took notice. But what if, in all of his expertise, he saw me and Ezra sitting on the couch and he began to offer me parenting advice? Say, hey man, I don't know if you thought about this, but at three years old, you probably need to start doing some more activity. Like, all right. What if he began to repaint walls? What if he began to reorder where the, the pots go in the kitchen? What if he began to step out of his place of authority? Well, I would respond the same way that Nazareth responded to Jesus. See, as long as you stay in your pocket, as long as you stay in your lane, you're okay. 
And Jesus, as long as you say good things, as long as you preach good stories, as long as you do those things, we're okay. But you are taking it too far. You're starting to make claims that you are God and you are the son of God and people need to trust in you. And so they began to be offended by Jesus because he had stepped out of his place that they had for him. And that word offense is the same word that's used as stumbling block in the rest of the New Testament. This thing that prevents belief, this thing that prevents faith in Jesus. And you would think that Jesus' hometown would be rooting for Jesus. Anyone know how many times the the name of Nazareth, the town, is mentioned in the Old Testament? Zero. The town of Nazareth had about 500 people at most. My graduating class in high school was more than 500 people. So this was a nothing town in the middle of nowhere that had nothing to its name. You would think that a famous teacher, preacher, would be something that would be celebrated. And if that's all that Jesus was, he would be. But as the title of our sermon series says, that Jesus is more than we expect. And oftentimes, he's more than we want him to be. And so they didn't just get mad at Jesus for being a famous teacher. They began to be offended by him. And we see that that's true of Jesus' own family. You remember what happened in Mark chapter 3, verses 20 and 21? Jesus entered a house, and the crowd gathered again so that they were not even able to eat. When his family heard this, when Jesus' natural family heard this, They set out to restrain him because they said he's out of his mind. Even Jesus' own family thought he was crazy. So no wonder his hometown thought the same thing. Some of us are like, man, how could they reject Jesus? How could they see the miracles? How could they see the power? How could they see all the things that Jesus is doing and reject him? How could they do that? We're getting there. Because we do the same thing. After this story, there's two, there's two main stories for the rest of this chapter. I'm going to sum up in two kind of seemingly impossible commands. Jesus gives two commands that set the tone for the rest of the chapter. One is take nothing. The second command is you feed them. So those are the two stories that make up the rest of this chapter with an interesting twist in the middle. Let's start with the first command. Mark chapter 6, verses 7 through 11, it says, He summoned the twelve, these apostles, these first disciples now made apostles. He summoned those and began to send them out in pairs and gave them authority over unclean spirits. He instructed them to take nothing for the road except a staff, no bread, no traveling bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on an extra shirt. He said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that place. If any place that does not welcome you or listens to you when you leave, Shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. What is Jesus doing? Jesus is sending out his 12 disciples as pairs to go preach and demonstrate the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And to make sure that they were completely and totally relying and trusting on him, he made them take nothing but their staff and their sandals. For those who maybe make the connections in Exodus chapter 3, when, when God said, hurry, leave the nation as he freed the Israelites from bondage, this is the exact same thing that the freed slaves took in Egypt. It was a walking staff and just their sandals. No extra clothes, no money, no bag, nothing. Why? Because I will provide. And guess what? They did exactly that. Verse 12 and 13, so they went out and preached to people, should repent, and they drove up many demons, anointed many sick, and with people with oil, and healed them. Y'all, so far, so good, right? But remember, what was explicit in Nazareth is implicit later. 
So it seems like this is a good story. Jesus sends out these 12. Now, mind you, this is early in the ministry. This is probably too soon, honestly, to send out the disciples. But Jesus wants to let people know from the beginning of his ministry that I'm doing something more than just preaching and teaching. I'm building something that will last forever, the church. And so he sends out the 12. They come back with stories. Zoom over to verse 30 of chapter 6. It says, the apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that they had done and taught. So it seems like things had gone well, but there's this, this huge chunk of passage in my Bible. Do you see it in yours? Between Jesus sending them and verse 30, then coming back and sharing their stories. And that's the story of John the Baptist. So he, look what Mark is doing. Mark is telling about the sending of the 12 to go and preach and teach the gospel. They come back and talk about all the good things that God has done. But in between that is sandwiched kind of a flashback of John the Baptist. Some of you may not know John the Baptist. He was introduced in Mark chapter 1. So funny story. You know the entire book of Mark, there's only two stories that are not about Jesus in the entire book. There's only two stories that are not about Jesus. And they're both about John, and they both point to Jesus. We saw the first one in Mark chapter 1, the announcement of John the Baptist. And this is the second story here. So John was a prophet of sorts who would prepare the way for Jesus' coming. He would teach the baptism of repentance, preparing people's hearts to receive their Savior. But he also did something unusual. He spoke against those in power, specifically Herod, and talking about he, Herod had married his sister-in-law slash niece. It's a weird family tree that they have. It's really interesting to look up. We don't have time to go into it. It's a lot of crazy marriages. But he had basically married his brother's wife. And they had children. And John the Baptist would tell Herod, hey, man, you can't do that. Hey, man, you can't do that. Hey, hey, Herod, hey, Herod, you can't do that. So much so that Herodias, his, his, Herod's wife, actually put John in jail over that. Like, we just need to shut this guy up. But something unusual was happening even while John was in jail. Look at verses 17 through 20. For Herod himself had given orders to arrest John and to chain him in prison on account of Herodias his brother Philip's wife, even the Bible doesn't just call him his wife, because he had married her. John had been telling Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias held a grudge against him, John, and wanted to kill him. But look what happened. But she could not, because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing he was a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard him, he would be very perplexed, and yet he liked to listen to him. So Herod would sit with John, and John would tell him of his sin. And it would frustrate and perplex Herod, but for some reason, he kept coming back over and over and over to do it. There's a lesson there somewhere, y'all. But finally, Herod's brother's wife gets a chance. Herod's birthday comes along, so Herod has a daughter. He sends his, she sends his daughter to go dance for Herod and to perform this beautiful kind of elaborate dance, so much so that Herod is so pleased with the dance. Now, mind you, he's got all the important people in the town. He's got all of his rulers and, and all the important officials in the city at his birthday party. And so Herod kind of wants to flex a little bit his power. So he sees this dance and says, you know what? I'll give you up to half my kingdom because you dance so well. Now, first of all, Herod doesn't own anything. The Romans own everything. But this is a phrase. It means that, man, I've, I've been, you've impressed me so much that I'm a, what do you want? I'll give you anything that you want. And so the daughter runs to the mother and says, hey, dad said I can have anything. What should I ask for? And Herodias saw her opportunity. She said, ask for the head of John the Baptist. Verse 26 through 29, although the king was deeply distressed 
Because of his oaths and the guests, he did not want to refuse her. The king immediately sent for an executioner and commanded him to bring John's head. So he went and beheaded him in prison, brought, him, brought his head on a platter, and gave it to the girl. Then the girl gave it to her mother. When John's disciples heard about it, they came and removed the corpse and placed it in a tomb. Seems kind of like a downer story. Right in the middle of a pretty cool story. Right in the middle of this missions trip video, we've seen the, the recounts, right? the, the, the highlight reel of mission trips and how awesome God is doing stuff. We've got pictures of little kids and you're doing all the activity. And right in the middle of that is an execution story. What is Mark doing? It's on purpose, but we'll get back to it. So verse 30, the disciples go and then come back. They gathered, and so Jesus said, hey, man, you've been on this long journey. Let's go away to let you rest just a little bit. Verse 31 through 34, let's pick up the story. He said to them, Jesus said to them, come away by yourselves to a remote place and rest for a while. For many people were coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. So they went away in a boat by themselves to a remote place, but many saw them leaving and recognizing him. And they ran on foot from all the towns and arrived ahead of him. When he went on ashore, he saw a large crowd and had compassion on them because they were sheep without a shepherd. Then he began to teach them many things. Jesus tries to take his, his disciples on a sabbatical. He's like, man, you've just been out preaching and teaching and casting out demons. Let's go away to rest a little bit. But compassion drove him to continue to serve in ministry. And so he began to meet the needs of the people, healing those, preaching the gospel. And finally, in verse 35, when it grew late, his disciples approached him and said, this place is deserted and it is already late. Send them away so they could go into the surrounding countryside and villages to buy themselves something to eat. Now listen to what Jesus says. You give them something to eat, he responded. They said to him, should we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? You hear the sarcasm there a little bit? 200 denarii is about six months' salary. There's 5,000 men there, not including women and children. Between 15 to 20,000 people were coming out. And Jesus said, hey, they're hungry. So the disciples said, hey, well, they're hungry. Let's, let's send them away so they can go to the town and fend for themselves. And Jesus says, no, you feed them. What is Jesus doing? A couple things. What did they just come back from doing? They had just come back from casting out demons. They had just come back from healing the sick. They had just come back from seeing the power of God move with Jesus not around. And so you would think when Jesus said, you feed them, they would have an opportunity to see God do again what he had already done. But instead, they responded with sarcasm and said, should we buy six months of salary worth of food to feed all these people? Jesus gave them a command to feed, and they were in disbelief. So Jesus steps in as he always does in verse 38. He asked them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. He started with what they had. There's a whole sermon in here. I don't got time for it. I'm telling you. When they found out five and two fish, then he instructed them to have all sit down in groups of green grass. They, so they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. He took the five loaves and two fish. Looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke the loaves, not because he needed to, but as a model so that they would see. He kept giving them to his disciples and set before the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. Everyone, 5,000 men, not including women and children, everyone ate and was satisfied. Now, here's the kicker, y'all. They picked up how many baskets? They picked up 12 baskets full of pieces of bread and fish. Now, those who had eaten the loaves were 5,000 men. Why 12 baskets? One for each disciple. 
a basket full of bread to remind them of their doubting of God's provision. So, Mark's not done adding insult to injury. Not only does each disciple get their own personal basket of God's provision, but immediately he transitions to the story about another powerful work of God. And I'm going to connect these two stories, even though they're oftentimes told separately. I'm going to read these five verses. We're going to talk Mark 45, verses 250. It says, immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side to Bethsaida, and while he dismissed the crowd. After he said goodbye to them, he went away to the mountain to pray. Well into the night, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. He saw them straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Very early in the morning, he came toward them walking on the sea and wanted to pass them by. When they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out because all, they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately, he spoke with them and said, have courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Now, other gospel accounts make this story much larger than it is. This is Peter walking on the water. This is the storm. But Mark's not interested in all that. Mark is interested about flexing Jesus here. Remember how Herod said, I'll give you up to half my kingdom, trying to show off in front of his friends? Jesus does this. I, I promise y'all, I think Jesus is just not, I don't think he realizes that he's showing off. He said, hey, y'all go to the other side. I'll meet you there. Jesus doesn't have a boat. How's he going to meet them there? But he says, you go to the other side. I will meet you there, the sea or lake of Galilee. And it says that, verse 48, he says, he saw them straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Very early in the morning, he came toward them walking on the sea. And what did he want to do? He wanted to pass by them. Jesus' intention was just to walk across the lake because it was the shortest way. Y'all don't hear me. Jesus was walking across the lake simply because it was the shortest way to get to where he wanted to go. And when you're the God of God, the King of kings, and Lord of lords, that stuff don't matter to you. And so he, he's walking along the lake, doesn't even mean to interrupt them. He's like, man, they're fighting this storm. They're rowing at the oars. I'll let them finish that. I'll meet them on the other side. But they see him and call out to him, and they think he's a ghost. And he says, nope, nope, it's me. Don't be afraid. They didn't recognize Jesus. They thought he was a ghost. Verse 51 and 52, then he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. They were completely astounded. Does it sound familiar? Because they had not understood about the loaves. Instead, their hearts were hardened. That's why I connect these two stories. Because I think Mark is connecting these two stories. Because they didn't understand the loaves. They didn't understand the God who could do that. That's why they were so astounded and amazed that he could calm the waves and walk on the waters. What's the point here, y'all? I began by saying today my aim is to show that to believe in Jesus is to follow Jesus. And we show Mark shows us the unbelief of Jesus' family. He shows us the unbelief of Jesus' hometown and even the unbelief of the disciples because they don't quite know who he is yet. They got a, they got a glimpse of who he is, but they don't quite know who he is. And you might say to me, Philip, well, th these are his followers. These are people who literally follow him from place to place. These are people who gave up families and businesses and, and why they gave up everything to come and follow Jesus. I would say at this point of the Jesus' ministry, them following Jesus is not much unlike how we follow celebrities on social media. How do we do it? We hop on our social medias. We hit a button one time that says follow. Then they show, kind of show up in our daily routines with a quote or a video and the things we like, we share, and the things we don't, we just kind of ignore. Some of y'all ain't got it, so let me make it plain. Some of us follow Jesus the same way. 
You walked up to the front of a stage. You said a prayer one time. Then you come around church or you read your Bible and the stuff that God does and says that you like, you share that stuff. The other stuff, the hard commands, the call to holiness, God's anger and hatred towards sin, we just kind of ignore those. And if that is your Christian life, you are not a follower, you're just a fan. You see, truth be told, honestly, it can be hard to tell the difference between a fan of Jesus and a follower of Jesus. Fans of Jesus love to talk about Jesus. Fans of Jesus love to be loved by Jesus. Fans of Jesus love to learn about Jesus. Fans of Jesus love to hear about Jesus. Fans of Jesus seem to be followers of Jesus. And none of these things are are wrong, and a good follower of Jesus will love all of those things as well. But what distinguishes a follower of Jesus from a fan? A follower doesn't just get excited, but walks in obedience day by day. Even if it causes discomfort, even if it causes isolation, even if it causes a, a dating relationship, even if it costs our lives as a follower, we will go where Jesus goes. And so belief and following are the same thing in the Bible. Kyle Eidemann wrote a book called Not a Fan, Being a Completely Committed Follower of Jesus. He wrote a whole book on this idea between fan and follower, and he wrote it like this. Here's a quote from this book. The biggest threat to the church today is fans who call themselves Christians, but aren't actually interested in following Christ. They want to be close enough to Jesus to get all the benefits, but not so close that it requires anything from them. They want to be close enough to Jesus to get all the benefits, but not so close that it requires anything from them. To believe in Jesus is to follow Jesus because you trust him. Not out of fear or guilt or shame, but out of trust that is rooted in his love for you. John 14, 15 is oftentimes thrown out as a command. If you love me, obey my commandments. We've heard this passage before, haven't we? I would submit to you, it's not just a command, it's an observation. Love in the heart produces obedience in the hands. He's making an observation. Clouds in the sky produce rain, birds chirp, birds fly, fish swim. He's making an observation that love produces obedience. The love of God produces trust in God which produces obedience to God. First John says it this way, for this is, the love, this is what love for God is, to keep his commands. And his commands are not a burden because everyone who has been born of God conquers the world. This is the victory that has conquered the world, our faith. His commands are not a burden because the same God who commands also empowers us by giving us victory in our faith in Jesus. This is why the story of John the Baptist is in the middle of this story. He is contrasting what it looks like to follow Jesus, what it just looks like to be excited about Jesus. You see, the disciples did what Jesus did, and they they came back and told the story. But when it came time to put their faith in him yet again, you feed them. They faltered. When it came time to see Jesus as a man who could walk on water, they would rather believe it was a ghost than believe Jesus could walk on water. You see, when it came time to believe that Jesus really is all that he says that he is, not just a good teacher, not just a communicator of truths, but is truth himself, they had a hard time wrestling with Jesus stepping out of his place, or at least the place they thought he should be in. 
You see, the truth is when we see Jesus rightly, miracles are possible. Power is displayed. Bondages are broken. When we see Jesus rightly, when Jesus calls us to do the hard thing, the impossible sounding thing, you feed them. It's not a burden. And that's why I believe Mark ends this passage the way he does. Look at the last few verses of Mark chapter 6. When they had crossed over, they came to the shore at Gennesaret and anchored there. As they got out of the boat, people immediately recognized him. They hurried throughout that region and began to carry the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. Wherever he went into villages, towns, or the country, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and begged that they might touch just the end of his robe. And everyone who touched it was healed. Everyone who touched was healed. Was that healing possible because Jesus had a magic jacket on? Was that where the power came from? No. Remember what happened first in this story? We, get, we zoom in on the power of the healing, but look where that power came from. Look where it started from. It came from them recognizing Jesus, verse 54, and they got out of the boat, and people immediately recognized him. Contrasted with the disciples who thought he was a ghost. Contrasted with his family in Nazareth who thought he was just a carpenter's son. Contrasted with how people think about Jesus, when people see Jesus rightly, they have access to who he is and to his power. You can't get the benefits of Christ without seeing Christ as Christ. You can't get the benefits of a Savior without repenting of your sins. You can't get the benefits of Jesus being your Lord without submitting in humble obedience to him. You see, when he got out of the boat and they saw him as Jesus, they didn't see a celebrity getting out to meet his fans. No, they they saw a savior calling followers and they saw him as such. They recognized him as such and they were healed. So here's the call today, y'all. Will you join me? And moving inch by inch, nook and cranny of our heart to becoming a fan, becoming not a fan, but a follower of Jesus. Will you accept God's grace not just to forgive your sins, but to free you from the power of sin so that you can walk in obedience? Will you live in such a way in your Christianity that you don't live just to get all the things that you can get out of this life? From God, but will you commit to giving your life to God so that he can get all that he wants to get out of your life to his glory by the power of the Spirit for all, for all peoples and all nations? The reality is Mark is contrasting the rejection of his family, the rejection of his hometown, the disbelief of the disciples with the acceptance of people who hadn't ever met Jesus before. But when they saw him, They recognized him as Jesus, as the only Savior possible, as the only hope possible. And because they saw him as that, they were healed. They were healed. Fan Christianity infects so much of our churches. Because it looks like you're being a good follower and you're just quoting and retweeting. But are you following God in those hard places of life? We said in a Sunday night Bible study that where do you disagree with God? If you haven't yet got to a place where you disagree with God, you're either perfect and your heart is perfectly aligned with God's heart for you. I'm not going to say it's not possible, but not likely. Or you're just 
ignoring the parts about God that seem to rub up against what you want out of life. And you're not really letting his lordship saturate your whole life. That's what it means to be a follower, y'all. To saturate your whole life. So that matter what God says, when you're looking at a crowd of 15,000 people, if he says you feed him, you say, yes, sir. You don't know how that's going to happen. But you trust God. Will you go from being a fan to a follower today with me? Church, let's pray together.